the way that you live is determined by what you believe about death. And what I mean by that is, is that if, if you believe that this is all that there is, if you believe that there is no life after death, if you believe that, that death is an ultimate and final end, then you should live completely unconstrained by any type of ethical obligations. You should live completely unconstrained by, by any type of, of moral requirements because you should live it up. We live in, looking around in our society, we see that our society is obviously one that believes that there is nothing beyond this, that this is as good as it gets. And so as we watch TV and as we read magazines, as we go through Facebook a million times a day, all of them in unison are calling us to, to live for the moment, to live in the now, to do what we want to do and to satisfy all of our cravings and satisfy all of our appetites, to try to pursue whatever it is that we want. But if you believe that death is not the end but the beginning, if you believe that death is not an end, but instead a threshold, that you will one day cross across and, and enter into a, a permanent state, and into a forever state, then that determines how you live now. Because if, if you have life that lasts forever, if you have joy that lasts forever, if you have leisure that lasts forever, if you will be satisfied forever, guess what? It's easy to do without for a few years. It's easy to do without in the temporary. If you aren't sure what you believe about death, look at your life. Look at your life and see what you do, see how you live, see if, you living, if you're living for the moment, see if you're indulging all of your appetites, see if you're trying to obtain as much, many things as you can obtain, and then work backwards from there. If you are, what does that say? That says, I have to live it up now because this is as good as it gets. If you aren't, it says, I trust in the Lord. I trust in the gospel. I trust that this isn't as good as it gets, that there's a, a better day coming. So this morning I call on you and evaluate your theology of death. Evaluate your perspective on death. What do you believe about death? Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys know last week we started a series on the resurrection, and, and last week Paul really kind of spent the whole, we kind of spent the whole week with him kind of, of establishing the foundation for his argument, kind of establishing the foundation that he's going to build the rest of chapter 15 on, and he's going to go into great length in chapter 15. We could have spent 12 weeks in chapter 15, but we're going to do it in four, all right? So this morning, would you stand with me as we read God's word? Together, we, we are going to read, just as a heads up, a few, more script, a few more verses than we normally would, and so I'm going to ask you to engage with me and, and place yourself in the text and not allow your mind to wander. We start in verse 12 and read through verse 34. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in Christ, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end who, who, uh, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, we do not, what do people mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in, fa- in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, be my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. When we get to verses 12 and 13, we see where Paul has been building up to. We we see in verses 12 and 13 really the nature of the argument that Paul is making in chapter 15. Verse 12 he says... Now if Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's happening at Corinth. If we just read between the, li- the, li- uh, between the lines just a little bit, what we can see is, is that it is apparent that in Corinth there were questions about the nature of the resurrection. In fact, in Corinth it seems apparent that they were saying that we in fact are not bodily resurrected. Now, I think to understand this, we need to kind of understand the, the mindset of Corinth. And Corinth is, is an ancient Greek city, and it was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, especially that of Plato. Now, Platonic philosophy said this. It said that, that the, the spirit is entrapped within the body. That in, in other words, that the, the body, the flesh, is wicked. That it's a cage that kind of holds within itself the spirit, and so that the, the ultimate goal of every person and the ultimate hope at death is that what will happen is that this, this cage will go away and that the spirit will be set free. And it seems apparent that this is probably very likely the way they were beginning to think about the resurrection in Corinth. The resurrection is difficult to believe, obviously. People don't just raise from the dead. None of them do. Has any of you ever seen it? And so what they, their minds are trying to do is they're trying to, to rationally and logically and scientifically, philosophically process all of this to figure out how it could be that, that Christ was resurrected and that they too in Christ would be resurrected. 
And so it seems as though the, the conclusions that many of them have come to is that in death that we will all become a disembodied spirit. That we will leave our bodies and we will be and we will just float around like the ghosts of heaven and no body, no physical, just in spirit. Now, I find it true that many in the church today believe it this way. That many in the church today, you even hear people that talk about heaven like it's going to be some boring place. where We're going to be floating around on clouds and playing harps and, and doing all these things that we see in Bugs Bunny movies. And if that's the case, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the gospel is dependent on our resurrection because our resurrection is dependent on Christ's resurrection. That it was not enough for Jesus to come and to die, to be buried, and then to be resurrected metaphorically. It was not enough for, for Jesus to die, be placed in the grave, and then be raised spiritually even. No, Jesus couldn't just raise as some optical illusion. Jesus couldn't just be raised from the dead in spirit. Jesus had to have a resurrection that was literal and true and final and ultimate. If Jesus only had some spirit floating around, what kind of defeat of death is that? If Jesus' resurrection is just an optical illusion, what kind of power will he have over the grave? None. Jesus' resurrection had to be real. It had to be literal. It had to be true. And any hope that we have is found in that. And so what Paul begins to do in the next several verses, going all the way through verse 19, is he begins to show us the consequences of a faulty view of the resurrection. He begins to, to show us the, the consequences. If we were to hold to this view that the resurrection is metaphorical or the resurrection is just spiritual. If we're just going to be these disembodied spirits floating around heaven. If that is our perspective, he's showing us the flaw of the argument. Now he starts this by saying in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do you understand that if Christ has not been literally, perfectly, ultimately, totally raised from the dead, that I'm a false preacher? That I'm a false preacher? And that you've believed a false gospel? In other words, the gospel is all I have. The resurrection is all I have. The resurrection, I will live and die with it. It is what all of my theology, it is what all of my gospel, it is what all of my hope rests in, is in the reality of the resurrection. See, what was at stake here for Paul is whether or not we were going to trust God. What's at stake for Paul and the church at Corinth is whether or not the church of Corinth were going, was, were going to be willing to have the faith to trust God at his word. To trust the apostles at their word as being empowered by God to speak truthfully on his behalf. Because apparently, going back to what we were talking about with their, their Greek philosophical influence, what we're going to see is what they're trying to do is cater their message to their culture. 
They're trying to, to take the message and let it make sense in the culture. Because people obviously know that nobody's been raised from the dead. Nobody's going to believe that. And so if I can go all the way back to Plato, people buy into Plato. Plato has some credibility in my world. And so I'll take what he says, put it, a Christian spin on it, and then, then people will want the gospel. Then my church will be relevant again. And what Paul is saying is, do you not trust God more than that? Do you not trust God more than that? See, this is the lie of Christian liberalism. You understand that? We live in the midst of a Christian culture. And I say that in quotes. But we live in the midst of a Christian culture that feels as though we have to make the gospel relevant. We live in the midst of a Christian culture that says that we have to be able to rationally and scientifically explain every single thing in the Bible or it must not be the truth. And we have to do this if we want to be relevant. We have to do this if we want to reach people. We have to do this if we want anybody to come to our church, if we want anybody to take us seriously. But what we need to understand this morning is that when we go to messing with the message, what we essentially are saying and what the church at Corinth was saying is you can't trust God. You can't trust him. You can't trust that God is so big and so mighty that he can give you a book that is truthful. You can't trust that God is so big and so mighty that he can't can't allow a group of people to survive on an ark in a worldwide flood. That our God is not big enough to split the Red Sea. And our God is not big enough to turn water into wine. That our God is just too small. And so essentially every time we try to go down this this road of, of trying to make our message relevant, essentially what we tell the world is our God's just not trustworthy. And you know what we find out? Every time a church goes liberal, the church dies. It dies. Because there's nothing to stand on. It has no message to preach. What Paul is saying, if the resurrection's not true, what else do I have to say? Over the past 40 years, the Reformed churches of America have declined 67% as they've tried to rationalize the faith. The Episcopal church has declined 49% as they have went into this, this scientific theism. The Presbyterian church... USA, not to be confused with the PCA, has declined 47% over the last 40 years. And that's news. Even in this week, they affirmed gay marriage. All of them have have done what? All of them have have moved toward this path, trying to, to strengthen their church, trying to make their church more relevant. And in fact, what they've done is they've caused it to crumble. Because they are telling the world, you can't trust God. The same period of time, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Church, has grown by 46%, increased by 46%. And what happened over that 40-year period? We returned to the inerrancy of Scripture. We returned to the sufficiency of God. We returned to saying, our God is big enough to trust. Our God is big enough to rely on. And this morning, I want you to know, I'm not a Baptist because I was born a Baptist. I'm a Baptist because Baptists hold to the Word of God and say that they are trustworthy. And so we put Baptists on our church sign without embarrassment and without shame because we want people to know where we stand. And we want people to know that we will stand and we will rise and we will fall with the trustworthiness of God, the sufficiency of the scriptures. So Paul keeps, and and as he goes down in the consequences, he goes goes deeper, he he goes heavier. 
He says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Here's what Paul is saying. The resurrection is the thread that holds together all of the gospel. So to, to misunderstand the resurrection is to misunderstand the gospel. To, to get the resurrection wrong is to get the gospel wrong. That if, if, if what you are saying, Corinth, is true about the resurrection, you need to know that you're in your sin. You need to know that your faith is in vain, that your faith is futile, your faith is pointless. Think back to what we talked about last week. Last week, as, we, as, we were, as Paul was framing up this whole argument, he, he starts by how? He starts by explaining the gospel, right? And so he says that, that Jesus comes here, and, and Jesus comes and he's, he's fully man, being tempted as we are tempted, hurting as we hurt, getting tired as we are tired, so that he could die, and he could die as a substitute for us. But he was not just man, he was also fully God. He came here having to be fully God so that he could offer a sacrifice to God that was infinite in value, infinitely, infinite in worth, infinite in grace, infinite in provision. And so Jesus comes here being fully man, fully God, lives a perfect life, goes to the cross, nails our sin to the tree, dies and is buried in the tomb, showing that not only did he come as fully man and fully God, but he comes and he was fully dead. In the grave, he was there three days. And on the third day, he arose from the grave, showing that he is different from all of the other gods. He is different from Buddha, and he is different from Muhammad. He is different from all of the pharaohs. He is different from all of these uh, polytheistic cultures that say we're worshiping the sun. What other god has done that? No, our god has come and told us what he would do and then done it and raised from the dead and affirmed to us. And so what Paul is reminding us this morning is that it is the, the resurrection that binds all of the gospel together. It is the resurrection that affirms everything that Jesus said he was about. It is the resurrection that told us that Jesus is trustworthy and nobody else is. It is the resurrection that told us that we can place the hope of our sins into his hands and that his hands are able and his hands are willing and his hands have accomplished it for us. And so... If we were to not believe in the resurrection, if we were to in any way doubt the resurrection, that the resurrection was literal, that the resurrection was physical, that the resurrection was ultimate, that would literally mean the unraveling of the gospel. It would literally mean that, that he is no better than any other God, that he is no better than any other teacher, that what he says is just as futile, what he says is just as powerless, what he says is just as pointless than everybody else. Which take, takes Paul to his furthest extreme that he gets to in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. He's saying this, if Christ has not been raised from the dead... If we one day will not be raised to the dead with him, and yet we are living our lives as though he is God, and we are living our lives devoted to him, then we should be pitied that it is a pitiful thing to devote your life and waste it. At stake here is whether or not we are living a wasted life. At stake in the resurrection is what, what it is that amounts to a, a wasted life. 
if Jesus is really the man that raised from the dead, if Jesus is really the God that was raised from the dead, that died on our behalf, it would be a wasted life to not live a full life devoted to him entirely. But if he was not, if his resurrection was an optical illusion, if his resurrection was just some, some myth, if his resurrection was just some metaphorical image or illustration for all of us to understand, then what we should do is we should just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. We should live this life as hard as we can. We should live this life as enjoyably as we can. We should satisfy every inkling of the flesh. And what does he say at the beginning? If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Do you understand this morning, brothers and sisters, that what's at stake here is whether or not we have hope? Hope is at stake here. Hope. You see, either this is as good as it gets or this is as bad as it gets. Do you understand that? This is either as good as it gets or as bad as it gets, as if you belong to Christ. But I don't know about you. But as I look around the world... I see a world that's broken. I see a world in which children are abused, women are raped, and men are cowards. I see a world in which we have to use words like childhood leukemia, and MS, and HIV, and depression, and Alzheimer's. Where people can be born into this world without hope and without chance. I look around at our world and it just leaves me hoping that there is optimism. But there, there is no resurrection. There is no optimism. Even the wealthiest among us, even the most sex, successful among us are among the most miserable. Ted Turner is, world -renowned, is a world-renowned billionaire. He, he's the founder of CNN, a number of other cable networks. He used to own the Atlanta Braves. His ex-wife, Jane Fonda, said this about him. Ted has lived his entire life as though he's trying to outrun his inner demons. You can be a billionaire. You can own a professional baseball team. You can have the very best that this world has to offer and still be utterly miserable and hopeless. And this morning, our hope resides on whether or not Christ raised from the dead. Is this as good as it gets or not? Is there hope after this? Is there hope beyond the grave? Is there hope beyond leukemia? Is there hope beyond cancer? Is there hope beyond this world where, where people are dying, children are dying, they don't have food to eat or water to drink? Is there hope? What does Paul say in verse 20? I hope you feel he's been building tension in your soul. He's been, he's been turning your stomach into knots. And then what does he say in verse 20? But in fact. But in fact. But in reality, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Be put at ease, brothers and sisters. Let there be optimism abounding among God's people this morning. Because it is not myth. It is not optical illusion. It is not a disembodied resurrection. It is a true, full, literal, bodily resurrection that Christ has done. And he has conquered our death too. He says, but in fact. What is he saying? He's saying, remember what I said just a few minutes ago. Remember verses 1 through 11. In fact. Christ did live in accordance to the scriptures. In fact, Christ did fulfill them perfectly. Things that had been said of him thousands of years before he came. In fact, he lived them out and lived them out totally and perfectly, fulfilling and being 
who God said he would be. In fact, Jesus, having been raised from the dead, went and he appeared to over 500 people physically. They were able to put their finger in the wounds on his hands and put their hands in the wound in his side. They were able to touch him. Can you touch spirits? Can you touch ghosts? But in fact, look at my life. Look at my life. I was a blasphemer. I was a murderer. I was a persecutor. And I was happy to do it. But I too saw the resurrected Christ. And by the power of the resurrection, I have been fully transformed inward to outward. I have a new heart and a new life and a new birth. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Look at all of the evidence. And if this is true, as Paul shows us and as I want us to understand this morning, there are massive implications for us. Massive implications. We're going to focus on two. This is where we could spend literally the rest of, rest of the morning is, or the rest of the month studying. But the, first, the first one that I want you to see is that if Jesus raised from the dead, if the resurrection is true, then he is the Lord that reigns over everything. That he is the Lord and has proven himself to be the Lord, and he now reigns over everything. This is what he says in, uh, in verse 20. He says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christ has come. All of this is underneath him. All of the enemies are under his feet. All of the worlds are under his feet. All of the authorities are under his feet. All the presidents, all the kings, all the congresses, all of the mighty men, all of the wealthy men, all of the mighty armies. They're all under his feet. And Christ, in his resurrection, has come as a first fruit for us. In other words, Christ has come and he has paid the down payment on our resurrection with his resurrection. That he has has come and he has shown himself worthy, he has shown himself able because of what he has done. That that is the first fruit of the ultimate harvest that will come. And that is that all who belong to Christ, all who, who turn from their sins and turn toward Christ and commit their lives to him, now they too will be resurrected from the dead. That Christ has gone and he has shown us what he will do for us by doing what he did in himself. That as Christ has been raised, we too have been raised. And who else can answer to him? Everybody else will tremble at his name. The demons will tremble. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord because he is the one that was resurrected from the dead. And so now he reigns supremely. And we we need to see Paul's picture of this Jesus. We need to make sure that we understand Paul's picture of this this reigning Jesus, of this this Lord, of this lordship that Jesus is possessing. That this is not just some timid king. That Jesus is not just a powerful king that is timid and afraid to exercise his authority. Do you see that? the, The language that he's using here. The language that he's using here is the language of a warrior. It's the language of, of soldiers. He talks about everything will reign has been, and, uh, he, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. This is a warrior king. A warrior king. 
He's our warrior king. He's a warrior God. That the God that we're talking about, that the Jesus that we're talking about, is the same one that defeated Egypt in Exodus. He's the same one that crushed Jericho in Joshua. He's the same one that struck down Goliath, well, a little bitty shepherd boy. And he's not done. He's not done. And he won't be done until he has put all of his enemies, even the worst of his enemies, even the most powerful of his enemies, even the most threatening of his enemies, death. He will not be done until death is destroyed finally and ultimately. And that's how the Bible ends, isn't it? Revelation 20. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. You see how strong Jesus is? He doesn't just push them in. He doesn't just kind of drag them in. He picks them up and he throws them in. See, I think we have this image of Jesus sometimes. Like he's this his little hippie, long-haired hippie with the peace sign cuddling up to a little lamb. We have, we have this, this image of Jesus, like Jesus is the wimp on the playground. And that he's just kind of hoping that, that Satan doesn't come and pick on him today or pick on his church today. And we kind of think he's going to win, but the way that we think he's going to win is that, that somehow Jesus is going to kind of lend a sucker punch. That, that, that Satan's going to get thrown off balance a little bit and he's going to come and he's going to nail him and, and it's all going to be good. And, and so it, we have this, this picture of an underdog Jesus, right? I hope you see this morning. That what we're talking about is not a Rocky movie. What we're talking about is not a David and Goliath story. We're not talking about the little fighter that gets lucky one time and lands a punch and knocks the, the big giant out. What we're talking about is a nuclear bomb landing on an ant. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about a tsunami hitting, uh, uh, hitting White Plains watershed. That's what we're talking about. We don't serve a wimpy God. We don't serve a wimpy Christ. He has come and he will defeat and he will crush and he will destroy all of the enemies and ours too. And then what does he say? The end will come. The end will come. And if the end, what end is he talking about? He's talking about the end of all of this. He's talking about the end of AIDS. He's talking about the end of divorce. He's talking about the end of funerals. He's talking about the end of Alzheimer's. He's talking about the end of living every day knowing that tragedy may be lurking around the corner. All of that goes away. That the end is really the beginning. That the resurrection that took place 2,000 years ago will still cause the, the universe to tremble 2 billion years from now. That it will always be proclaiming, be preaching, be bellowing that Christ has risen. Christ is Lord. Christ is reigning. And all of his enemies will be cast into the lake of fire. And guess what? Our enemies too. We are with him. All of those, don't you like the language that Paul uses? He says, those who belong to Christ. I believe that's in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ. We, Jesus doesn't just win. All of us that are with Christ, he allows us to win with him. Which takes us to the last point, the last implication that I think we see here. 
is that if the resurrection is true, Christ reigns over all of the universe, that Christ reigns over all, the, all of his enemies, that Christ is in control of everything, and as a result, we should live in submission to him. We should live in submission to him. That in fact, it is the only way that we will not waste our lives. That in fact, it is the only way that we will not live hopelessly. It is the only way that we will not be miserable. It's to live our lives as pledging allegiance to the only one that has shown himself to be worthy of that. To invest the, the few years that we have here into him whom holds in his hands forever. Billions of years, trillions of years, forever. See, what the resurrection does is twofold. The resurrection, first of all, demands us to live a godly life. It demands us to live a godly life because it demands us to come under the lordship of Christ, to bring him glory with our names, to bring him honor with our name, with, with, with our actions, with our lives, to bring fame to his name so that everyone will know that he is the just king and he is the gracious king and he is the mighty king so that they too might come. But it doesn't just demand us live a, a godly life. It empowers us to do so. In other places, like Philippians and in Romans, Paul talks about how we live the life that we live according to resurrection power. That we have the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now dwells in you. Dwells in you. That he raised Jesus from the dead and it's going to now sustain you through the Christian life. And so, yes, Jesus is calling you to a radical life. Yes, Jesus is calling you to come and do some exceptional things. But what he is also doing is he is filling you with the very power to accomplish it with. So that others might be drawn to you. So that others might be drawn to him. So that others might enjoy the gospel too. So that others might be rescued as well. That's why he tells Corinth. That at the, at the very end, what does he say? For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. In other words, they don't see God in you. They don't see the power of the resurrection in you. It's almost a strange way that Paul ends it, isn't it? He ends with these, these, these imperatives, with these, this application in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. What is he saying? He's saying, live as though you really do know the resurrection is the truth. Live as though you really do know who is the king. Live as though you really do have the resurrection power in your life so that others may be drawn into it. Don't try to make your message relevant. Don't try to make your message new age. Don't try to make it more palatable. Say it as it is and live a life empowered by the resurrection and watch what happens. Watch what God does. This morning... I ask you, are you wasting your life? Are you wasting your life? Are you living your life in submission to Christ? Are you living as your life as one who believes the resurrection to be true? Or do you believe it at all? This morning, I, I plead with you. Don't waste your life another second. Don't waste your life another day. Because this is not as good as it gets. It gets better. It gets infinitely, infinitely, infinitely better. And you who turn to Christ, you who live a godly life moving toward him, will reign with him forever. And so sacrifice now and enjoy later. Don't waste your life anymore.
Perhaps this morning you've realized that you've had an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Perhaps this morning you have, for your whole life, even though you would have called yourself a Christian, have have realized that you didn't trust in the resurrection, that you didn't believe in this literal, physical resurrection. You were not a Christian. That is necessary. This is a, a fundamental of the faith. You believed in vain. But this morning, I call you to come to this glorious reality. I, come, I call you to come to what is true, what in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And this morning, you perhaps have had your eyes open and the Lord would call you to himself. Come and talk with Aaron or I. If you want to come and be a member of Iron City, we would love to talk with you and to um, talk with you about joining arms. Come down front this morning and talk with us or uh, catch up with Aaron or I immediately following the sermon. Let me pray for us this morning.